We are forward-looking creatures. We're always having this tendency to think about what's ahead. Uh, we're always wanting something to look forward to. And yet currently, uh, what is there to look forward to? I hope this isn't going to sound too miserable, but on the big scale, there is a lot of pessimism about the future. Worries. You know, the West's in decline and China's on the rise and Russia looks threatening. And, well, climate change. Is there going to be a future to look forward to? Or, well, what about are we heading towards an economic depression and are we going to be saddled with massive debt for ages? On the big scale, there is a lot of pessimism about the future. And then on the personal scale, well, these social distancing restrictions have dragged on. And, you know, when the schools closed and some people said, that's it, they probably won't go back this academic year. I thought, you must be joking. And now it's looking like, well, is it going to be this year at all? Uh, maybe you're unable to go away on the holiday you had booked. Maybe you felt a bit trapped at home. Maybe you're wondering, when will we go back to normal and what will the new normal be like? How do you keep going? Why keep going? What's the point of keeping going? Well, the Bible has a positive, a an uplifting, I use that word purposely, an uplifting answer to, that should keep us going and keep us going joyfully. So let's turn again to Philippians. Please have in front of you Philippians chapter three and verses 12 to 14. Philippians three verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot of words there, but it's all quite simple, really, because it's actually two sentences. Verse 12 is one sentence and verses 13 to 14 is the other sentence. And both sentences say the same thing. Verse 13 and 14 is just a repetition of verse 12 in different words. It's saying quite the same thing, but just in different words. And both sentences center on one action. Can you see the one action? It's there in the middle of verse 12. And it's there in the beginning of verse 14. One action that's at the middle of both sentences. It is Press on, press on. It's all about keeping going. Now, those of you who were with us last Sunday, I hope you remember that Seth started a new series about what I'd call the series helps to keep going. Helps to keep going. Keep going in the Christian life, keep going in difficulties, keep going, well, in, in various ways that I hope we'll get on to as we go through this series. And Seth last week set the foundation, which is Jesus keeps us going because he came to give us eternal life, life that keeps going. And today I want to build on that foundation because of that foundation. Jesus came to give us eternal life. We press on. 
And I want to point out three things these verses give us to help us keep going. So here they are, three things to help us keep going. The first one, press on because there is more to receive. Press on because there's more to receive. Children, have you ever won a race? Can you think of any race, maybe running at school or something? I think the only race I ever won at school was a skipping race I won once. That's a bit embarrassing. But anyway, have you ever won a race? I remember seeing a motorbike race and the biker at the front of the race, he crossed the line and he raised his arms in triumph thinking he'd won and he just rolled on because he thought he'd won and all the other riders streamed past him because there was still one more lap to go. And that rider who was first ended up last. He thought he'd won, but there was still more to go. The race hadn't finished. Well, Paul had further to go, but he didn't make that biker's mistake. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. By the way, it isn't really about whether you're perfect or not. The word there is or have already reached the goal. And verse verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He knows there's more to go. Now, do you know where Paul was as he wrote this? He was in prison, Uh, probably actually house arrest. So in a private house, but with a Roman soldier guarding him, expecting to be executed. But he doesn't think he's finished the race. Yes, he's probably near the finish line, but he knows he's not yet crossed the finish line. There's more for him to receive, to experience, to enjoy, to do. Now, before we get into what that is that there's more of, I need to contrast it with deadening religion, because that is the context in chapter three. The context is deadening religion. So, for example, see verse two. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, that's strong stuff. Fancy calling some people dogs, especially as they were Jewish. And you might know that Jewish people don't like dogs. They're unclean animals. Why is he strong like this? Because there were false teachers around and false teachers are dangerous. They get you trusting yourself and what you do. So verse four talks about confidence in the flesh, in yourself and what you do. They get you focused on the things the world wants now. So verse 19 describes them as people whose mind is on earthly things. Most false teachers are variations of those two things. Get you trusting yourself and what you do and get you focused on what the world wants now. And offer you, you can have what the world wants now. And so because that is so dangerous, Even though Philippians is possibly the most positive and joyful letter Paul wrote, he here uses strong language. Because it's needed. Think of a period drama on TV and in that period drama, they're in their fancy old fashioned clothes or a load of people off to church. And they're in the period drama. You see them sitting in those wooden pews. And what's it like on the TV programme? People at church. It is boring. It is dull. 
It is people who don't want to be there and they sit distractedly through a preacher rambling on. And then when he's finished, clear off as quickly as they can. They've done their bit. Now, why in those TV programs is church shown like that? Well, partly it's because TV program makers tend to be anti-Christianity and like to have a dig at us. But partly it's because it's often true. So much religion is dull and boring and deadening and hypocritical. And it's so easy to get into religious action that deadens our eagerness for Jesus Christ. A dull routine with no desire for Christ. And Paul here gives himself as an example of the opposite of that deadening religion. He's not like that deadening religion. He's eager for Jesus. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this. What is the all this he hasn't yet obtained? Not that I've already obtained all this. Paul, what are you talking about? What is this all this you've already obtained? Well, you haven't already obtained. Well, there's no mystery about it. It's very simple. It's quite obvious. It's what he's just said in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What he hasn't obtained is he wants to know more of Jesus. Oh, yes, he already knows him. He knows him well, but he there's more to come. He wants to know him more. And this knowing isn't just knowing about him. It's closeness to Jesus. It's closeness to Jesus in a double sense. It's closeness to Jesus that results in being made like him. Do you see that at the end of verse 10? Being made like him. And it's closeness to Jesus that results in going to be with him. Do you see that in verse 11? By the way, when verse 11 says somehow, it doesn't mean that Paul is unsure of whether he will rise from the dead or doesn't have a clue how that works. It's he doesn't know when and where or quite what the circumstances will be. Remember, he's in prison and he might be executed or he might be released. But this is what Paul is eager for, this double knowing of Jesus that results in being made like him and going to be with him. Paul is towards the end of his life, but he still says there's more to come. There's more I want to receive. Notice this isn't a negative beating himself up. Come on, you must do more. Come on, you miserable sinner, do more. No, it's a positive. There is more to receive. More love, more joy. Uh, I could receive more gentleness and patience and kindness, more obedience. I could display my saviour more in the way that I relate to that Roman soldier who's guarding me. And especially he's looking forward to his body being raised free from prison, but also free from sin and the fall. And going to be with the one who loved him and died for him. Now, this eagerness that Paul has comes from he already knows Christ. And this is the lifeblood of this letter to the Philippians. I hope you know this letter well. If you haven't read it recently, read it again soon. It's such a a positive, joyful letter 
full of delight in Jesus. So, for example, in chapter one, Paul is in prison. There are people who are getting at him. But his attitude is, I'm just happy Jesus is being made known. Verse 18, chapter one, verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice. In fact, verse 21, to me, to live is Christ and so to die is gain. And so chapter two, verse six to 11, Paul bursts into this glorious statement of who Jesus is in very nature, God. And yet he emptied himself. Emptied himself to serve us. And Jesus is so wonderful that chapter three, verse eight. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That's that's actually a weak translation. Uh, Paul uses a strong word there. I consider them the stuff you flush down the toilet. That I may gain Christ compared with Christ They're They're that stuff you flush down the toilet. I just I just want him. And so Paul's final encouragement to these Philippian Christians is chapter four, verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, can you feel this just bursting out of Paul? Think about such things. But given what he said already. Chapter four, verse eight is best done by thinking about Jesus himself, because by the time you get to chapter four, verse eight, you know that Paul thinks that Jesus is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about him. Well, there's Paul's example. But he says in our chapter three, verse 17, Verse 17, join with others in following my example. So do you know Jesus Christ? Are you amazed at his character, that he's in very nature God and he emptied himself to serve us? Have you discovered his love? Are you shocked that he chose to die for you? Are you humbled and awed that one day every knee will bow to him? You're amazed at this. One day you will see him. And does that make you eager for him to know him better, to be more like him, to go to be with him? If you're trusting the Lord Jesus, God has already given you so much. But press on, press on because there's more to receive. Even if you're 88, there's more to receive. So press on. Here's a second help to keep going. Secondly, press on. Don't be held back. Don't be held back. Uh, now, we're going to concentrate more on verse 13 and 14 now. And verse 13 and 14 use the language of an athletics race. It's very much written in the language of athletics races in their time. So let's think of, an, of a famous Olympic champion. Children, can you think of any Olympic champions you've heard of? 
Well, here's one I think was great. In fact, it's not just I think it. He's undoubtedly great. Eric Liddell. He was an Olympic champion in 1924. And then he went back to the country he was born in, China, to be a missionary there. And in 1923, one year before he became an Olympic champion, he was running a quarter mile race, quarter mile. And in that race, he tripped over and he fell off the track and all the other runners went past him until even the last runner was 30 meters ahead of him. Now, in that condition, in that situation, most runners would just give up and crawl off because there's no chance. There's no chance of recovering that sort of distance. But not Eric Liddell. He stood, he got up. And he pressed on and he overtook them all and he won the race. It's almost fairy tale, but it's, it's true. He didn't let what had happened stop him pressing on. He put it behind him and he pressed on. And Paul is the same. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. This is exactly the same as with Eric Liddell. I don't let anything hold me back. I don't get distracted. I'm just going all out for the finish line. Press on. Don't be held back. Now, what could hold you back in the Christian life from pressing on ahead? Well, previous failures can. Previous failures, you can be held back by that feeling of guilt over past sin, that sense of being a failure. That knowing what a mess you've made in the past and just living in fear, oh, I'm bound to do it again. I'm bound to fall for it again. No point trying is bound to happen again. How do we stop ourselves being held back by previous failures? Well, the answer is get a grasp of and use the gospel. You don't just ignore the previous failures and sweep the mess under the carpet. No, you face up to it and you take it to God. And you admit it to him and you don't make excuses and you don't downplay it. You fully admit it to him. And you ask his forgiveness and you trust his promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is cleansed. It is wiped out. And then you trust his grace is enough to enable you to press on and to overcome. And trusting in his grace, you do press on and you don't keep mulling over those sins. Verse 13, I forget what is behind. Put it out of your mind and press on. We can be held back also by previous things you trusted in. That is the context, actually, in chapter three. So in verses four to six, Paul lists previous things he trusted in, that he was a really good Jew, that he was really zealous for God. So zealous, he went around persecuting these Christians who were obviously wrong. But now in verse eight, he says, that's all rubbish. That's all stuff you flush down the toilet. Trusting that leads to a static life. 
But trusting Jesus and pressing on, that gives a dynamic life. So are any of you trusting in the years of service you've given in church? Are any of you trusting in the eagerness and seriousness you had when you were younger? Or maybe you have your own variation of that, that that you can recognise and have to admit you're trusting in. That is dangerous because that is not trusting Jesus himself. And that leads to missing out. Because there is there's more to receive. So verse 13, forget what's behind. Even if again, even if you're 88, forget what's behind. Don't be focused backwards. Oh, how good it used to be. The glory days behind. No, the glory days are ahead because there's more to receive of the Lord Jesus. Forget what's behind. We can be held back by distractions around us. Now, I know that verse 13 says forgetting what is behind, but it it would be too narrow to say it's got to be things behind you. The point is, have that focus ahead. Don't get distracted. Don't let other things get so big in your life that in practice, your mind is taken up with looking forward to the next episode of that TV program you're following or looking forward to that weekend coming ahead up or or living for the holiday that's ahead. Now, enjoy God's good gifts. Yes, look forward to God's good gifts, but don't let the gifts get so big that they You run after them and they're veering you away from running after being with the giver. Don't get distracted. Now, you may recognize that this is a mindset I'm talking about. This is an attitude. And Paul emphasizes that, for example, in verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. It's literally have such a mindset. By the way, it's the same word as he used in chapter two, verse five. Your attitude, your mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus. Don't be like the false teachers who, verse 19, their mindset is all about earthly things. Your attitude, your mindset affects how you run the race. Anyone who knows a bit about sport knows that sports psychology really matters. Yes, to be an Olympic champion, you've got to be strong. You've got to have the physique. But what often makes the difference between a winner and a an also ran? It is that mindset, that attitude, that like Eric Liddell, single minded, positive determination. Not giving up. Hopeful determination. And we need that Christian psychology. And chapter four, verse eight is giving us that Christian psychology. Come on, put your mind on Jesus Christ and how he is noble and right and pure. Feed your mind, shape your attitude on him. Do you think about going to be with him? Do you? Do you actually purposely decide to I'm going to for this next 15 minutes, think about going to be with him? Do you look into the Bible and see what does it say about going to be with him? Because if not, you are really making it hard to press on. You're a bit like the athlete starting a race. 
And he never gives any thought to the prize. And he never gives any thought to the world record he might uh, beat. Instead, his mind is on the changing rooms and how it was nicer back there. And this race is just going to be really hard work. Well, he's lost before he started. You've got to purposely fix your mind on Jesus and think about what it will be like to go and be with him. Press on, press on. Don't let anything hold you back. And then lastly, a third thing to help us keep going. Press on. It's worth it. It's worth it. Now, I hope you don't mind another sporting example. I've had lots of comments on sport here, but verse 13 and 14 are about racing. So here's another sporting example. A rugby team is 12 points down and there's eight minutes to go until the match ends. How hard must that be to keep going? You know, I've watched my rugby matches like that. And there's this team just getting smashed by the other team. And I think, how hard must it be to throw yourself into those tackles when there's eight minutes to go? And if you're 12 points down, that means you need to get two tries, convert them both and get a penalty. But that's very hard in eight minutes. The chances of success are very low. What is the chance of success in the Christian life? You know, if the chance is very low, then it's probably not worth pressing on. What is the chance of success in the Christian life? Well, remember that verse 12 is one sentence and verses 13 and 14 are another sentence and that they are both saying press on and they both end by saying it's worth it. Be confident it's worth it. So, for example, the first sentence adds. Uh, ends, sorry, the first sentence ends, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is what makes it worth it. This is what makes the chances of success 100%. Because I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If you were with us last week, Try to remember last week's sermon, which really did set the foundation. We heard last week from John's gospel. The father has given the son a people, a people to belong to him. And the son came to die for those people to give them eternal life. And he did that because he wants to be with them and them to be with him. You can get all of that from John's gospel. And now in our lives, Jesus comes to us and takes hold of us. Paul is being personal here. So we could expand on this. And it's like Paul saying there was a time when I was dead against Jesus. So dead against Jesus, I was marching off to arrest the followers of Jesus. And as I was marching off to a town called Damascus, Jesus came and took hold of me and he changed my life. In the language of John's gospel, Jesus was the good shepherd who came seeking the lost sheep. Imagine children, you've all seen sheep, haven't you? Imagine a sheep and it's it's somehow got out of the gate and it's wandered off from the field and it's out of sight of the shepherd and it stumbles into a peat bog. I was once walking in the Yorkshire Dales and I, (laughs) it's a bit silly how it happened, but anyway, I ended up in a peat bog and I sank up to my thighs and I could not get myself out. 
And my friends around just stood around and laughed and took photos until eventually two of them pulled me out. And it took two of them quite a bit of effort to pull me out. I could not get myself out. Well, if that happens to a sheep, what can it do? Can it free itself? Can it unhitch a rope and get itself pulled out? It's going to die unless the good shepherd finds it and takes hold of it and pulls it out. Children, what can the sheep do? Can it get itself out? Can it rescue itself? Does that mean there's nothing it can do? Oh, no, there is something. Can you think, children, what can a sheep do when it's stuck in a peat bog? It's very simple. That's what it will do, won't it? It will bleat and bar and call. That's the one thing it can do and hope that the shepherd hears it and comes and takes hold of it and pulls it out. Now, if you are still living for yourself, if you are not following Jesus, the good shepherd, you're a lost sheep, lost in your sin, in danger of eternal death. What can you do about it? You can't pull yourself up by your bootlaces. You can't rescue yourself, but you can Ah, you can call, can't you, for the good shepherd? You can call for him to take hold of you and rescue you. Have you done that? And it's not just like the sheep, the shepherd might hear. No, the shepherd will hear. He promises he will hear and he will take hold of you. Fellow Christians, why did Jesus take hold of you? For nothing less than this. That you should know him, that knowing him that makes you like him and takes you to be with him. That's why he took hold of you. So it's worth pressing on, press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of you. Well, the next sentence, verse 13 to 14, ends the same way. It's just in different words, the same thing. But we haven't got time to go through it. I'm just trying to make up my mind how much to to say. It's Well, I'd love to say more about it, but I think, it, well, it says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. It's, it's the same as Jesus taking hold of us, but put in different words. God has called me. If you're a Christian, it's because God has called you. With this call that here, the picture is is not God in the spectator stand urging you on. Come on, try harder, put in more effort out of your own strength. The picture is God at the finish line and he's calling you to himself because he wants you to be with him. And he's not just calling you to dig deeper into your reserves of energy and push harder with your muscles. This is a call that like Jesus calling Lazarus from the grave or calling the paralyzed man to stand up and walk. It's a call that itself puts energy and strength and determination and desire into you to keep you pressing on. There are the Bible's reasons to press on. What does the world offer you? What does the world offer? Uh, Well, at the moment, it offers pessimism about the future, but it says press on because the next weekend might be a good one. Press on because there's a holiday coming up. Press on to earn a comfortable retirement. Well, they're all nice, but they're not really in the end good enough 
reasons for pressing on. Jesus gives us so much better. Jesus gives us something better to keep us going. Has he given it to you? Has Jesus taken hold of you? Have you, like that lost sheep, called out for him to take hold of you? Have you heard God's call, the gospel call, calling you to repent and believe? And if you have, if you have responded to that, you have got the best, you have got the most joyful reason to press on.